Let's pray. Lord, I pray for a hungry people this morning. I pray for a people that are here with their work gloves on, with their teeth in, with their steak knives and their forks, their bib and their collar. Lord, I pray that if people are gathered here this morning ready to dine and do the work of enjoying the weight of your glory. Lord, I pray that, actually, I'm thankful that you don't need me this morning, that you don't need a messenger to communicate, but that you have chosen that as a means. And I'm thankful, too, that it's not dependent on my expertise, which I have none. I'm thankful that you take the foolish things that confound the wise. I'll offer myself as a foolish messenger this morning with a prepared heart, with a message that I believe came from the mountaintop that makes a whole lot of Jesus this morning. I pray that your people are hungry, that they've been anticipating this as they've tended to their tents and gathered manna and quail, that they've readied themselves for a message from you. Lord, I also want to pray for a, another church in our community and another pastor, a really close friend, Greg Fields and Tracy, and just thank you so much for their friendship. Lord, I pray for their church, your church at Westminster. Lord, I pray that it brings glory to you. I pray that they will remain faithful, that Greg will preach the word, that he will study, that he'll be undone and disassembled and reassembled, that he'll be a husband that blesses his wife, that pours out his primary ministry on his family. Lord, I pray for just a like-mindedness between us and Westminster and the other Christian churches in this community where we can truly walk together as a people of God, maybe gathering in different locations, but with a like heart. Guard us, actually forgive us for division, forgive us for competition, Guard us from that, Lord, and just uh, use us for your glory. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let me prepare you this morning before we climb in. I want you to know, actually, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 39. Then you'll be ready. I'll give you the bird's eye view just of some passages that I I want everybody to see. Uh, Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 32, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 4, and John 3.16. Those are the main courses, the main items. The rest, there are lots of other passages that will be sort of condiments that uh, if you're like sword, sword drill warrior and can then you can turn with me. But those are the main ones I want you to see. Genesis 39, Genesis 32, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 4, John 3, 16. I want to prepare you for this message this morning. I want you to know that it's work to know God. If, I, you know, I realize, man, as I'm preparing to preach and as I'm preaching, that oftentimes we're engaging something really weighty. And something really challenging. Satan works on me on Saturday. I had a little binge in the kitchen last night, knowing what was in store today. He works on me and he says, man, people can't handle this weight fair. It's just too heavy. It's just too much. Just lighten it up a little. And then I go back and I say, no. You know, considering the weight of glory, considering the depth and length and height and breadth of his love, how could we possibly sit for a few minutes with light fare and hope to engage this amazing God that we're going to spend eternity enjoying? Can't we spend 45 minutes to an hour and really engage something really meaty? So I argue with Satan and I tell him that I'm going to preach it anyway. So here's what it is this morning. It's going to be work. It's not going to be easy. Um, I've considered that some of us put more work into knowing football stats than we do in knowing our God. Some of us might know more 
about the different various AT&T phone plans than we know about God. We might know more about chemistry for some of the students. We put more time into understanding chemical equations than we do in understanding the living God. Some of us can put more time into learning new decorating ideas than we do knowing our God. So I'm bringing it this morning for hungry people and hoping that uh, that's the majority of us this morning. We're continuing in our church series. This is the fifth sermon in this series. The first first sermon considered the church is a people. It's not an organization. It's an organism. And it's also not a building. We're real intentional. I I catch some of y'all sometimes and you're real sheepish and embarrassed by calling the church a building. It's not a building. The church is a people. This is just a building. We gather this morning for corporate worship. We don't go to church. We are a people that gathered this morning. The church is gathered. The church is a people. Secondly, we consider the church is an accountable people. It was a liar and a murderer that said, what am I, my brother's keeper? That's a liar and a murderer. God's people, on the other hand, we are our brother's keeper. Not as a meddler, but as brothers who are walking together, who care about each other. Like Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one. When one falls down, there's somebody there to help them up, man. Because of what's at stake. The beauty of the bride and the readiness for Christ's return is what's at stake. So we are indeed an accountable people involved in each other's lives for the right reasons. Third, the church is an accountable people who are led and leadable. Led by, in in this case, and I believe God's best to be, a plurality of leadership. In our case, elders. Elders, pastors, bishops weirdly enough, overseers are used interchangeably. In our Bibles, that's the same thing. So if you think, why do they have elders, not pastors? You do have pastors, three of them. We call them elders. They're led by elders, and the church is to be leadable. The church is to recognize that we need to be led. A church without leadership is like a flock without a shepherd. Churches and accountable people who are led and leadable, and the fourth sermon was that we are taught and teachable. The church has preaching and teaching. Two dudes gathered at Starbucks. We know that what our Bible tells us, that God is there. Does that mean that's the church? No. Does that mean that they are having church? No. Because part of the church is the teaching and preaching of the Word. Is someone bringing a Word? Then maybe it is the church. There are some other elements involved. But the church will have a message. The church will have a teacher and will have a preacher. And the church will have this vertical monologue that comes from God. And then the horizontal dialogue is born from that vertical monologue. The church has a message. The church is taught by feeble, albeit, teachers and preachers. And the church is to be teachable. The church is to be anticipating this vertical monologue. Bring it, God. Moses, go to the mountaintop. Go get the goods. We'll be waiting down here ready for your return because we need it. We are looking for his guidance. And then today we're going to consider really part A of a two-part sermon within this series on the church being loved and loving. Today we're just going to consider that the church is loved. They go together, and that's why I'm calling this part 5A. And next week when we're at uh, Grand Park, part 5B, that the church is loving in response to being loved. Today we're going to deal with the nature of his love for us and the application of his love for us. Four things. The first three have to do with his nature or the nature of this love for us. The last thing has to do with the application of his love for us. This I believe to be one of the weightiest. When I say weighty, I don't mean difficult to understand necessarily. I mean important messages that we're going to engage in this entire series. So like I said, I hope you got your teeth in. The first thing having to do with the nature of his love for us is that we are loved uncomfortably. We are loved uncomfortably. I had you turn to Genesis chapter 39. Let me give you kind of a big picture before we actually read this passage. Many of you remember the story of Joseph. We engaged this story a few months ago. Actually, it's probably almost a year ago now. It seemed like it was November of last year. We spent some time considering the life of Joseph, God's work in Joseph. Joseph was a uh, one brother among 12 who was uh, uh, kind of the favored son. And he was kind of a knucklehead. He had these dreams 
and he made the mistake. These dreams where, ironically, he saw his brothers bowing down to him. And oddly enough, stupidly enough, he shares that dream with his brothers. And his brothers get mad at him. His dad also gave him this pretty amazing coat. And his brothers got mad at him. His brothers beat him up, threw him into a pit, and sold him into slavery. <laughs> Bad day in the house, right? Brothers got hacked at him. Beat him up, threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt, and he's sold to a guy named Potiphar. He serves in Potiphar's house faithfully, and that's where we pick up here in um, verse 19 of chapter 39. Let me get, give you a little bit more background, too. You need this. Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. Thought he was a, a hunk. He's a stud, and I really like him. That's basically, she was trying to go after him, but he was kind of keeping her at arm's length and wasn't going to let this happen. But she actually got frustrated because he wasn't going to let that happen. So she decided to turn on him and create this lie, make up this lie and tell Potiphar that he was actually going after her. So that's where we pick up in verse 19 of chapter 39. As soon as his master, this is Potiphar, heard the words that his wife spoke to him. This is a lie. This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now realize what's happened so far. He's beat up by his brothers. I don't know of anybody that's really been beaten to the point where you were beaten and thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery and then lied about while you're a slave in somebody's house. And that's where we pick up right here. And this next verse being the key. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Does that just strike you as funny that he's showing his steadfast love to this guy who's beaten up by his brothers, he's thrown into a pit, he's sold into slavery, he's lied about, and then he's thrown into prison. And yet God is showing him his steadfast love. That's an interesting way of showing it. He is showing him his steadfast love. He's beaten, betrayed, sold, and lied about. And in this case, in this passage right here, he is loving a man currently in jail. As the story unfolds too, he's going to be forgotten in jail. He'll be there for years, wrongly accused. But here's the way God is loving them. There's a bigger plan at work. There's a plan to save his family from famine. There's a plan to actually create a people through this heartache of a story. What I want you all to see, first of all, that God loves the church uncomfortably. God does not remove all stressors and difficulties. God's love does not mean ease and comfort. God's love does not mean that all difficulties will be removed, but to be loved by God is to be used by God for His glory and for His plan, not for your comfort. He's about His own glory. Here's a quote from A.W. Pink. You'll hear a couple of quotes from him this morning. Here's the first. It says, Christ was beloved of the Father. We know that. The Father loves the Son. Yet he was not exempted from poverty, disgrace, and persecution. He hungered. He thirsted. Thus it was not incompatible with God's love for Christ when he permitted men to spit upon him. When he permitted men to smite him. Then let no Christian call into question God's love when he is brought under painful afflictions and trials. God did not enrich Christ on earth with temporal prosperity. For he had no place to lay his head. But he did give him the spirit without measure. Learn then that spiritual blessings are the principal gifts of divine love. How blessed, Pink says, to know that when the world hates us, God loves us. God loves the church uncomfortably. It's so easy to think when you're experiencing problems to think that God has somehow forgotten you and that he doesn't love you. And it's really because you don't understand his love. I'm going to share a passage with you. Like I said, if you're a sword drill warrior, you can turn there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. Otherwise, stay over there in Genesis. I'm going to start in verse 14. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. And listen to what he prays for specifically in this prayer. 
He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He wants you to be rooted and grounded in love, Ephesus that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, and what is the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a beautiful picture of what he's praying for here in the church in Ephesus. John Bunyan wrote a whole book on these couple of verses, on verses 18 and 19. An entire book is called the... It's not the weight of glory. Something to do with love. I forgot the title of it. But listen to this excerpt. It says, There is nothing that's more helpful or more comfortable to a Christian while in a state of trial and temptation than to know that there is a breadth to answer a breadth. Than to know that there is a length to answer a length. Than to know that there is a depth to answer a depth and a height to answer a height. Here's the picture. However wide your problem is, God's love is wider than that. However long your trial, His love is longer than that. However deep this difficulty might be, this suffering, His love is deeper. His love is higher than the most insurmountable problem you will ever face. That's God's love. You can't know, ironically, you can't know His love lest you endure these trials that stretch you broader and longer and deeper and higher than yourself. You can't know his love, but in those trials. His love is best known in those trials. His love is best displayed through those trials. So if you're suffering or struggling or wrestling with life, if you're wrestling with a difficult marriage, if you're wrestling with money problems, health problems, jobs plural. If you're wrestling with friends and family, don't be so small to think that God doesn't love you in that situation. He loves you enough to use you for his glory in that trial. Share a passage with you from Romans chapter 8. Again, if you're sword drill, go go there. Romans chapter 8. People often talk about assurance. Say, man, I want assurance my salvation. Can you help me with assurance? This is a place where I would turn when somebody says, I want assurance. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen to what He says next. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You want assurance? Listen to what He says next. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is a passage about the life of the loved. This is a passage about what it's like to be the church, that you will be loved uncomfortably. Whatever His plans for you, if you are His, His plans will include suffering because of His Son. I would argue that if you suffer in no way because of the faith, that's when you need to wonder if you're loved. That's when you need to wonder if you are one of the beloved, if you suffer in no way for your faith. The suffering for us here in 2009 in Greenville, Texas, can look like spending time you don't have, giving up a Saturday that you can't afford to give up, giving money that you can't spare. Hello? Suffering. Walking with those whose needs are greater than you than the needs you can meet. That's suffering. Doing things that are hard and scary and beyond you. That's suffering. Weeping with those who weep. That's suffering. And that's part of being the beloved. Do not mistake his love for us as a guarantee for flowery beds of ease. You'll live severely disappointed in God and his plans for you if you do. I didn't even deal with Hebrews chapter 12, a passage that deals with discipline, that he disciplines those that he loves. That would be a great passage to study as a follow-up. 
but we are loved uncomfortably. Secondly, we are loved uninfluenced and undeserved. Turn to Genesis chapter 32. I'm going to start a few chapters in front of this if you want to follow along with me. If you're one of those that's kind of a visual listener, then start over in chapter 25, verse 19. If you're one of those that just gets things when you just close your eyes and listen, then do that. We're going to focus in verse or in chapter 32. But I'm going to start in verse or in chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. He looked like Clint Stevens. <laughs> so they called his name Esau. It means, that means red, Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. That's key. Watch Jacob in this story. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a manly man, a man of the field, bringing home the bacon, while Jacob was a quiet man, sitting around with mommy, dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, you can just envision Jacob, soft, sitting around the tent, cooking some stew. And Esau comes in from the field all smelly and manly. And he was exhausted. Esau says to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his right birthright to the deceiver, Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Look at chapter 20, 27. When Jacob was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am, manly son Esau. And he said, Behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, manly boy that you are, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt some game for me and prepare some gumbo, delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her, her mama's boy Jacob, Come here, Jacob. I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me some game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, my mama's boy, obey my voice as I command you, you deceiver. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them from delicious food for your pre prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies but Jacob said to Rebekah his mother behold my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So mama's boy jo Jacob runs off. He went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. 
And the skins of a young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said to him, all trying to talk deep, sounding manly like Esau, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, "Uh, um, Because the Lord your God granted me success. And then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? Watch the deceiver. The deceiver says, I am. And then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven. Here's the blessing. And of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed As soon as Esau heard these words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother, the deceiver, came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him lord over you, and all his brothers I've given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, you needed that for background so you can see this passage in chapter 32, verse 9. Listen to Jacob. Jacob the deceiver who deceived his daddy, who deceived his brother. Listen to what happens in chapter 32. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac... O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. Listen to what he says next. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. You blessed me. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, and rightfully so. He's a mad, hairy dude, and he is going to kick my behind, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, oddly enough, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What I want you to see in Jacob here is I want you to see love undeserved. I want you to see love uninfluenced. 
The church is loved undeservedly. The church is like Jacob, loved uninfluenced. God decided, I will set my love on a deceiver. God, consistent with the way he operates, he chose the foolish things that confuse the wise. He chooses the least likely. Jacob, if it were me, I would have said Esau. Go with Esau. He's manly. At least he brings home the bacon. At least he's not a little mama's boy sitting around the tent deceiving people. But God set his love on Jacob. And Jacob in this passage says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love that you've extended toward me. Jacob knows he's not worthy. Do you? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is the way God operates. This isn't just a rare occurrence. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The church is loved, uninfluenced, and undeserved. Let me show this to you in the way he's treated Israel. Christy made the observation the other day. She said, I think the reason all this stuff is just kind of so hard for us to get is because we've just kind of handled the Old Testament like it's a bunch of children's stories. And the New Testament's for adults. We preach from the New Testament, and the stories are from the Old Testament. So we don't know the character of God and how he's operated with the people over the ages. But man, we can understand how he's dealing with the new Israel by watching how he's dealt with the old Israel. So let's see. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. It says, For you are a people. This is the nation of Israel. You people are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. He chose Israel, not the Amalekites, not the Amorites, not the Jebusites, not the Philistines, not the Egyptians. He chose Israel. And it's because they were so fine and upstanding and amazing. And they had such deep character. Watch what he says next. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you. And chose you, for you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He set his love on a bunch of undeserving people. If you want to know how undeserving Israel is, read the rest of the Old Testament. It's ugly. Man, they were, he calls them some pretty dirty names later. Read the book of Ezekiel and you'll see what I'm talking about, especially chapter 16. Ugliness. He set his love on a deceiver. He set his love on a people that there was nothing remarkable about. He did this because he is God and he set his love on Israel. He set his love on Jacob, uninfluenced by the kind of people that they were and even uninfluenced by the kind of people that they would be. He chose the foolish things that confound the wise. And he's done this for the church as well. If the church is no different. Listen to these passages. If you're quick. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony. Now, realize it's written to the church. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Nor of me his prisoner. This is written to Timothy specifically. But this is a letter for the church. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, by the way, Timothy, and called us to a holy calling. And Timothy, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This love that he has set on the church is the same love that he set on Jacob, the deceiver, is the same love that he set on Israel, who was not the most numerous and the most impressive. But in fact, the least. He set his love on people uninfluenced because of his own purpose and grace. Not because of our works. His love for us is uninfluenced. 1 John chapter 4 verse 19. Listen. Listen. The passage is familiar. We love because he first loved us. 
also written to the church and about the church. The church loves because he first loved us. He loved us first, uninfluenced, like he loved Abram and called him to go to a land that he had never seen. Like he loved Jacob, the deceiver. He loved Jacob first. Like he loved Joseph. Like he loved Israel. He loved them uninfluenced. He loves us uninfluenced. He initiates this whole thing. He loves us. And then we love him. It's not the other way around. He doesn't love us because we're already loving him. Well, there's somebody that loves me. I think I'll choose them. He loved first, and then we love. He loved us before we had a kernel of love, before we had an atom of love, before we had an ounce of love, before we had any lovability in us. He loves the church uninfluenced. Another quote from Pink. God's love for me and for each of his own was entirely unmoved by anything in us. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him. Everything calculated to make him loathe me. Sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. We are loved undeservedly. We are loved uninfluenced. Jacob knew it. He says, God, what in the world are you doing to love me? I know who I am. I know what I have done. Jacob knew it. Do you know it? Man, I want to tell you there are treasures in knowing that he's loved you uninfluenced. Deep, rich treasures. There's a sweet lowliness. There's a sweet teachability. There's a sweet humility that comes from this. There's an eager accountability that comes from this. And I'm going to tell you what, there's the sweetest worship you've ever experienced in your life when you begin to connect with this. You were and are loved uninfluenced. He set his love on you. We are loved undeservedly. Third, the church is loved specifically. I'm going to look in Romans chapter 9. If you want, if you're already kind of ready over there in the Old Testament, look in Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you're quick, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Since this is a familiar story to us, Jacob and Esau, let me read a passage to you because these overlap. These get heavier and heavier. The first one's easy. We're loved uncomfortably. Okay, I got that. We're loved uninfluenced. We're starting to kind of get, oh, hmm, what do you think about that? It's going to get heavier. It's going to get thicker. We're loved specifically. Listen to this passage in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. We already know what their names are. We just read about them. Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born, listen, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Oddly enough, the one that has some ounce of character will actually be the one that serves Jacob. And the next passage says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He loves specifically. The church is loved specifically. This deals with the trajectory of of his love. What direction is his love? Is it just this big gooey thing that just kind of glops on the whole world? Or does it have a trajectory? Yes, it does. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. 
Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this, you're about to find out what this is, has ever happened. Ask around. See if anything this awesome has ever happened, Israel, or was ever heard of, Israel. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you've heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, or by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. It wasn't shown to the Amalekites, to the Amorites, to the Jebusites, to the Hittites, to the Philistines, to the Egyptians. It was shown to you. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your hearts that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. God loved them specifically. Did he show himself to anybody else like this? No. He loved them specifically. He dealt with them Specifically, an undeserved, uninfluenced love that yet has a specific trajectory. And his love is no different now. It's not this gooey, ineffectual love, but a specific love on a chosen, elect people. It's a passage we just read. Christie's observation is right. The reason this is such an affront to people is because you hadn't read your Old Testament looking for the character of God. We hadn't gotten to know how God has dealt with people over the ages. He chose Israel among all nations. He said, you will be my chosen people. I'll love you. Not the Egyptians. Not the Hittites. Not the Jebusites. Not the Amalekites. Not the Amorites. Not the Philistines. I choose you. I set my love specifically on you. He's doing that now in the church. Listen to this passage. Ephesians chapter 1. Listen. Just listen. Listen. For the church, listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same God and Father that set his love on Israel, that set his love on Jacob. Blessed be that God who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before we'd ever done anything good or bad. Jacob, he loved. Esau, he hated before they'd ever done anything good or bad. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. (laughs) Oddly enough, the very thing that's so unsavory to so many is the demonstration of love. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What I want you to see here is the church just didn't just happen. That there wasn't this cross and then just kind of this worldwide gooey love that just happens to intersect with a few people. What I want you to see is the church happened. It's not an accidental outcome. It's not a result of some lame offering of gooey love. His love created a people that once were not. A people gathered from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every age and every class and every socioeconomic status. A people from all peoples. That's what his love did. 
His love was set on a people gathered, and that people gathered is called church. Man, Peter tried to encourage the church with this reality. He's urging the church. He's urging them to be holy. Listen, he says, I urge you, church, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And here's how he appealed to them. He says, church, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. That that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He set his love on a specific people, creating a holy nation, creating a royal priesthood, creating a people for his own possession. The same God that spoke and said, let there be light, is the same God that said, Lazarus, come forth, is the same God that spoke you into belief. It spoke the church into existence. Don't look at his love as some gooey offering to the world. Look at it as a specific, effectual outcome that creates a people. It's got teeth, man. It's potent. And it's real. And it's specific. We are loved specifically. The fourth thing, we are loved surgically. Surgically, if specifically deals with the trajectory of his love, surgically deals with how that love is offered. What instrument of love is offered? If being loved uncomfortably, loved uninfluenced, love specifically deals with the nature of his love for us, this deals with the application of his love for us. And let me tell you something. This is the cream. This is the cream. John 3.16, turn there. Probably the most familiar passage in our Bible. One of the first verses that we ever learn. I got a bag of peanut M&M's when I learned this verse. My daddy, I was an <laughs> overweight kid because I learned a bunch of scripture. John 3.16, man, I spent my whole life, mostly my whole life, up to about five years ago when I started to learn Greek and started to understand translations, seeing God's love as this big gooey thing. Like the, the Coke commercial, where we all join hands and sing together and sing Kumbaya, this big gooey thing. For God so loved the world. It's so big and gooey. And man, what I realized, this passage, rightly translated, it's actually at the bottom of your ESV page, if you have the ESV. It's actually in the bottom of your pew Bible, if that's what you're looking in today. There's a little note down in verse 6 that's so important, because it makes all the difference in the world. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the difference between, for God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. You see the difference between that and for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. You want to know what God's love looks like? Get to know Jesus. Understand what he's done. Spend your lives engaging the realities of the cross and the empty tomb. And then you're beginning to know God's love. It's not this big gooey offering. It's a very specific direction, a very specific instrument. The love that he gave the world is specifically Christ. Now, if you paid attention on love being specific and having specific trajectory, then you may be looking at the world love and going, wait a second, that looks like it kind of conflicts. Or he loves the world, right? You just said he loves a specific people. Let me help you deconflict that because that's going to come together to help you understand this surgical love. His love for the world is definite. Man, eat John 3.16. He loved the world in this way. There is a worldwide love with a specific application. 
a surgical instrument given in a specific direction. If you want to know how to reconcile that, go back to this thing that's often just storied for a bunch of kids and go back to the story of Noah and realize God loves the world just as much now as he loved the world then when he preserved the world in a remnant. Four families climb onto an ark. He gave specific instructions to Noah. And the beauty is it wasn't a silent redemption either. He had Noah preach for the hundreds of years that he's building the ark. It wasn't a silent redemption. It was a specific direction. And he is preserving a remnant. His love for the world with specific application on a chosen people. Preserving a remnant. He loved the world enough to preserve it through a remnant of humanity and a remnant of critterdom. He loved the world enough to have Noah preach as he built the ark. He loved the world enough to make a way, and it wasn't a silent way. And his ways are the same now. Now he loves the world enough to make a way, and that only way is a new ark that's called a cross. And that way that he's made now is with a new Noah, a better Noah, and his name is Jesus. And he is the only way. He loves surgically. He loves precisely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to these passages. Just listen. You can jot them down and look at them later, but I want you to hear them. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. This whole sermon comes together in these next three verses. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us. Specific. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, here undeserving of his love. He shows his specific love on us while we were undeserving. And here's how he does it. Christ died for us surgically. You see that? Christ died. That's the surgical demonstration of his love. There it is. You want to know how Christ fits into this whole thing? He is the whole thing. You want to know how Christ fits into God's love? He is Christ's love. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The surgical instrument of love was and is Christ. He's the only way that you can reconcile holiness and justice and wrath of God with grace and love. That's the only way they coalesce. It's the only way they commingle in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to this next verse, Romans 6, 23. Listen for the elements. For the wages of sin is death. Here, we're undeserving of his love. We're deserving of his wrath. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, here, uninfluenced. You hear it? But the free gift of God is eternal life. How? Surgically, in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how his love is given to us. If you never have another healthy day, if you never take another healthy breath, if you never eat another bite of food, if you never have another paycheck, if you never spend another day happily in your marriage, this Christ is worth enjoying. Do you understand that? Do you understand the riches that we have been given in Christ? It's all in Christ, every bit of it. Everything else is just gravy. You get to eat lunch, gravy. You get to breathe tomorrow, gravy. Do you understand how that would change the heart of the church? Man, nobody could hurt your feelings. You can't have a bad day. You're too amazed by His grace. That holiness, wrath, and justice co-mingle with grace and love in the finished work, surgical love that's extended specifically to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's scandalous. It'll rock your world. Listen to this last passage. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Listen. In this is love. We're talking about what love is. In this. Now, 
This is it. Now, here it is. Let's boil it down. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I realize I'm throwing in a big word on our last verse at the end of a sermon where y'all been hanging in there, but I want you to get this word. It's just a parking place for a new thought. If you don't know what this word means, I want you to know what it means. When it says that he is to be our propitiation for our sins, just insert wrath absorber. He is our wrath absorber. That's what the cross was. You want to know what it was? Why it was so brutal? Because he paid the price that you owed. He absorbed our wrath. For this is love, that he sent his son to be your wrath absorber. You want to know what love looks like? That's what it looks like. Christ is the only way an undeserving people can also be loved specifically. Surgical love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to reconcile holiness and justice and wrath with grace and love is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God loves the world enough to save a remnant, and that remnant is the church. God loves the world enough to make a way, and that singular surgical way is Jesus Christ. Period. He absorbed the wrath due a specific people. The church is a people loved uncomfortably, a people loved undeservedly, a people loved uninfluenced, a people loved specifically. The church is a people loved surgically, a people whose sins were and are absorbed by a blessed other. I appeal with Peter, the church is a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Let me pray. God, what a scandal. What a scandal that you set your love on anyone. Lord, I'm so thankful that Christianity is so absolutely different from any other religion on the face of this earth, so absolutely different from anything that any man would ever conjure up because you set your love on guys like Jacob. And you choose foolish things to confound the wise. And you set your love on a people like Israel and a people like Ben McGraw, Christy McGraw, Crosspoint Fellowship. God, I pray that that's the sort of reality that grows us downward in worship and wonder. I pray that these are sort of realities that create us, that build us into a people that are desperate for you. Lord, I pray that it's these sort of realities that will liberate us from this notion of church being a place that you go and a thing that you do and something else on your schedule. But that it actually becomes something that is all-consuming. That it creates a people that are headlong in worship. A people that are dumbfounded by grace. A people that have joy and peace that passes understanding. Lord, I'm so thankful for these realities. They create people that are willing to die for their faith. Lord, I pray that any one of us be willing to do that. Lord, we are so blessed by your love. I pray that we respond appropriately. I pray between now and next week, I pray for the preparation of your message for an appropriate response. What a people should look like who are loved in this way. What's an appropriate response? I just pray that you'll see that in us. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. I'll share a passage with you that escort us into that.
Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepared? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired. That word in the original language is the word lust. I've earnestly desired, lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The scandal that a God wants to dine with an uninfluenced, undeserving people. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given specifically, hear it, for you. This body's given for you. Do this. Do what? Do the Passover. The thing you've been doing for 1,500 years. Remembering a little unblemished lamb and a dark night at midnight when I delivered a people out of Egypt with blood slathered doors, with a belly full of herb roasted lamb and unleavened bread. Remember that. But now do this. Remembering me. I'm going to pass out the bread and take the Lord's Supper here, but I want to just let you know the supper is for those who are believing on Christ as their only hope. If you think that you can work out your salvation and earn it in some way, don't take this cup. Don't take this bread. This bread is for those who are saying, man, I've got no hope. I'm in league with Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm in league with Achan. I'm in league with Korah. I've rebelled against leadership. I've taken devoted things. You name it. I don't deserve this. Man, that's the sort of people that take this bread and this cup together. And then it's called worship. I don't deserve it. If you haven't cast yourself on Christ, man, don't take this cup. But I encourage you to talk with who brought you. Or talk with a teacher or an elder. Or talk with me. Let me show you these glories that is Christ. Let's take the bread together. Lord, we are so thankful for this body that was broken for us. Lord, I'm so thankful for this morning that we enjoyed the reality that that, broken, that body was broken specifically for a bunch of undeserving people. That your love for us is uninfluenced. Lord, I pray this morning that maybe for the first time that some folks that have claimed your name, claimed the name of your son, have been scandalized by this reality, maybe for the first time. Lord, I pray that we are worshiping as we take in this piece of bread, remembering the body that was broken so amazingly for us. Pray that we'll be changed as a result. There will be different sorts of husbands and wives. There will be different kinds of children and young people. Lord, there will be fathers that have this crazy story on our lips and on our minds and our hearts. Lord, that friends will sit together with friends on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning and talk about these amazing realities. Thank you for this broken body, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Lord, I pray that we will not forget, not even Monday, that it was blood that was shed for us. Not uh, coins, money, 
Not even just tears or sweat, but blood. Lord, I pray that that will add a gravity to what we're doing, this journey that we're on. We're so thankful that that blood is the only detergent that covers sin and that it was shed amply. That it covers the sin of your saints, past, present, and future. Every tribe, every tongue, every age, every nation, every socioeconomic class, every profession. We're so blessed by that reality and so thankful for the blood of Jesus. We worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.